The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The Conservatives are calling Jim Walcott's flip-flop on abortion the most cynical, opportunistic maneuver they've ever seen in Ontario politics. Really? Look, <clears throat> I've been thinking about this. I'm, I, I think that maybe what I should say is what I feel in my heart about abortion, period. No, no that's a bad Jim. idea, Jim. Remember Jesus Christ Superstar? Remember that 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 that, that show? Remember that? The, 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 the yeah yeah. Uh, um, uh, there's a character in there, the woman Mary, and she was uh, she was a hooker, and then Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Right. She started as a hooker, and then something happened. She saw Christ or the resurrection or something like this. Well, she started. She became holy, right? She, she became, became holy. Yeah. Okay. Mary Magdalene can flip flop. Jim Walcott can flip flop. Right. Okay. Don't forget about the whole flip flop thing. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So be it. That's it. So it is written. So it shall be done. I like that. Who said that? St. Paul? Somebody, some saying. No, no, that was uh, Yule Brenner, Ten Commandments. You know, Yule Brenner was brilliant in The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, he was, he was, there, he was good in that. I love yeah. that movie. Yeah. Okay, it's a great movie. Yeah. This is what's good about Jim. Say the Ten Commandments, you know, forget it, right? But, you know, bang, I love The Magnificent Seven. Right. Yul Brenner, The Magnificent Seven, that's the kind of stuff he comes up with, right? So I say, I love the movie, I love the candidate. It's that kind of mainstream, middle-brow sort of association that you make. I think that's great. We got to tap into the common man. He peeled common man, right? We got to tap into that. Tap into that. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white. Under the bedclothes. Everything will be uh, so it is written, eh, Robert? <laughs> so it shall be done. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we're going to be talking about today? Today our theme is elections. Not just the federal election as such, but that'll be the focus for the most part. But the way people approach election issues, I think, is part of what we'll be looking at today. Uh, you know, one of the questions I'll be asking in the last quarter of the show today is, can we believe politicians' promises? And I'm actually going to say yes, I think we can for the most part. And uh, for the first part of the show, I'll be talking about some of the dumb things I think people keep talking about that they think will solve our political woes. And uh, Robert, I understand you're going to be talking about strategic voting and why voters generally don't have a choice for a true right. Uh, At least for you and me, it's going to be a very difficult election. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where shall we start, you know? Although our primary focus is on the federal election, I think the principles that we're going to talk about apply to most voters in most Western democracies, I would think which is probably why we hear the same kinds of complaints coming from voters of almost all of these democracies. Last week we discussed uh, the fear of a coalition as sort of being unfounded, since, you know, Parliament is really a perpetual coalition of around 305 seats and of, of who otherwise would be independent representatives if they just didn't happen to be members of a private association called a political party. And we talked about political parties and minority government, etc., etc. But this week, Robert, I found myself forced, yes, forced indeed, wink, wink, to expand upon so many of the non-essentials and irrelevancies, uh, not of elections, but the issues within elections, due primarily to some of the, the really silly conversations about the election I've been privy to on a lot of open-line radio talk shows. Um, the vast majority 
of people seem to be focused on very irrelevant side side dish issues, if you want to talk about it that way. And what scares me most is no one seems to understand the basic workings and mechanism of the parliament that we're electing representatives to. So I thought we'd review just a handful of some of the more silly and misinformed viewpoints about the Canadian election that I hear floating around out there. And uh, these are usually the opinions of people who are looking desperately for some explanation, along with a ready-made solution to the deteriorating effectiveness of their governments. They, you know, they see things going wrong, and they want to fix it. By gosh, and that's a good—that's a good thing. Now, how many do I have here? I don't know how many I'll get to, but the ones I miss here, we'll we'll finish up at the end of the show before our first break. But one open line caller I heard suggested that the taxpayer should be forced to pay for all political parties. You know fully funded, registered, accredited parties, he says. And his, his reasoning was, we'd eliminate owing favors to companies so that when parties get elected, they don't have to act on any interest other than the citizens' behalf, not on the corporation's interest. <laughs> Something wrong with that picture? You know, uh, it's a reasonable objective to want the government to act in the citizens' interest. I, no problem with that. But the go- consequence is not that political parties act on citizens' interests when you have the government paying them, but they start acting on the government's interests and not even on a corporation's interests, you know? Uh, and that's completely contrary to all democratic principles. Wouldn't you agree? It, it, you know, it actually speaks to an ignorance of how the parliamentary system in Canada evolved. Parties don't run for election per se. Individuals do. Right. They just happen to belong to parties, which are private groupings. So when you look at it from that historical perspective, I think that nobody would, in the right mind, be advocating taxpayers' dollars go to private uh, political parties. Yeah, but what, what's the you know the elephant in the room with that argument is what obviously that caller didn't know is that's exactly how it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, federally. Uh, no, not entirely, because well, the, he he's asking for all parties, and of course there are parties out there who do oh, not maybe. get funding because they don't meet well, certain sa- criteria. That, but he said only the parties that meet the certain criteria. So that's what we have. The but criteria have, can be changed minute to minute all the time. That's always true, yes. You know? So, and we have that now. The criteria is in place. You have to have so many votes, so many seats, whatever. And then then you get money. The, the political party gets money. And um, as it turns out, I think everybody's vote out there turns out to about $10 because uh, it's $2 a year $2 for five years. per vote. So when you out and vote, go out and vote there, remember, you are raising your taxes by $10. And uh, to his credit, Stephen Harper would like to end that, but... To his credit, yes. Yes. I would agree with um, Now, what this caller didn't know, obviously, was that, uh, you know, this is how it is now. So, obviously, it can't be a corrective measure to anything, can it, since we already have it that way. Mm-hmm. And he still sees the problems that he's seeing. And he thinks this will be a solution, even though it's, it's what we've already got. Uh, you know, private associations should never be given money by the taxpayer. That's just a principle you have to follow. You know, the reason we have the block is because of this process. Because taxpayers fund the block. That's right. They don't have money. No money. <laughs> they would have no money if they had to rely on private funding. In fact, you know, if they had to rely solely on private contributions, they'd fall off the political map. Another argument we hear a lot about is we should have recall. You heard that one before. You mm-hmm. must have heard that a lot in your. Well, having belonged to the uh, Canadian yeah. Alliance and Reform <laughs> Party, of course I heard that. What was your take on that when you were in there? Were, were, was it a popular thing? It spoke to a sentiment out there that was um, a frustration for people when they saw a politician make promises, get into power, and then flip-flop, of course, and not fulfill their promises. So what do you do? you got to live with the guy for the next four or five years before you can vote him out. But um, 
for all intents and purposes, it's rather impractical, if you ask me. Well, I think, too, that it's a fact that all elections are the recall mechanism. That's what we have elections for. And then here's the irony. People hate elections. They, yeah. do, they hate it when it's more – the more often we have elections, the more they scream, and yet we have people saying we should have recall. Mm-hmm. Same people. The frustration just leads them into every contradiction you can think of. And, and, you know, on what grounds would you recall a representative? What, because he disagrees with you? You know, that defeats the whole purpose of politics. Now, if he, if he, if he you know, committed murder or something like that, then you can understand a recall. You know, another part of that problem, Bob, I don't know if yeah. you're going to address it or not, sure. is the fact that we have first-past-the-post system where uh, a politician can get elected and he does not have a plural, doesn't have a majority of the support of his constituents. Remember Bob Ray getting elected here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. I th- what did he get in with, like 33% of the popular vote? So people can be quite frustrated and look for an opportunity to get rid of the, uh, the people in power at any opportunity. And so recall was probably uh, well, that, responding that, to that. Know, I wasn't going to talk about first past the post as such, but certainly minority governments are a consequence of that system. And... You know, one of the weirdest things I heard recommended was actually by Andy Utman over at CJBK who thought that, you know, we could solve this problem, that when a, when a government gets a minority position, it should be allowed to govern as a majority for two years. And then we would have an election for two years. And I'm thinking, oh, dear. did he not think that through? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, think of what it means when you have a minority government. Let's work with an even number of 300 seats in the House just for mathematical reasons. Mm-hmm. Suppose your party gets... Uh, a hundred hundred uh, seats, and the other parties get no. Oh, no, it have to be hundred and one, wouldn't it? And then the other party one one gets ninety nine, one gets a hundred or something. It could be anything like that, you know. Just that you have an uneven split. Maybe I'm not using the right numbers, but say you know, but smaller Maybe than the other two combined. <laughs> no, I did. But that's what the minority is. So what he's basically saying, though, is that the party with with the smallest number of votes in the House should be able to rule absolutely, while the two parties who have the most number of votes in the House should do what exactly for two years? Let just, them? Just, just sit there? <laughs> yeah, just sit there? What are they going to do? You know, uh, we'll watch Stephen Harper for two years, and then next next minority government will watch him again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, just, it, 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 it speaks to a complete misunderstanding of how we elect people and why governments fall. The parliamentary democracy system is hundreds of years old, and it's run this way, and all of a sudden you just cannot say, okay, well, let's agree that I'm going to be leader now and, and run for two years and make it a law. It's impossible. You can't and, and, do that. That's not the, our system. But the reason isn't over the structure. The reason is everybody wants to get what they want, and when they don't get what they want out of the system, they want to change the system so it'll give them what they want. And that's the whole backwards way of, of constructing a system. A system should be specifically struct, constructed to prevent people from just getting what they want on a whim. I think that's what leadership is about. You know, we talk about, and then everybody says they're tired of elections, too many elections. Well, how many is too many? What's the magic number? We should be thankful you know? we live in a democracy and are able to do this every now and then. This right. is This is a... Uh, a great system that we have here, I think, being able to vote in your leader. And then there's, uh, of course, you know... Don't like that word, though, leader. Yeah, well, no, the, the leader is important because the leader is a symbolic representation of a party's complete philosophy, mm-hmm. really, and how and the, the quickest way for the public to relate to that party and that body that's of people. Um, we also hear reform or get rid of the Senate. You know, that's the two opposing schools of thought on this issue. On this issue, each believing it to be a solution to the nation's problems. You have a, a triple E Senate that's equal, elected, and effective, and a triple E Senate that we should eliminate, eliminate, and eliminate. <laughs> right. So you have those two sides, and the rest of Canada doesn't care. You got two extreme points of view on the Senate, and most of them are basically, you know, hear no evil, see no evil kind of thing. And of course, there's always the argument, vote or else, because you know. 
um, you have to vote. You know, otherwise you're not being a good citizen. But, you know, that's interesting because if you do, if you vote because you feel you must, then you are playing the politician's game. He's got you. You know, in this game, I guess you get to choose your master, but you can't choose self-government. No master, please. Thank you, you know. For a lot of us, it's almost like being a, 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 being a condemned man choosing your executioner. Right. I mean, what's the point sometimes? For yes. some people, that, that might be the issue. And people think that, you know, participating in democracy begins and ends with the vote, which is almost oh, no. the, the least part, you know. Voting is actually a small, minuscule part of the democratic system. You know... I think active participation in the public forum, which is really democracy, it's doing things like what we're doing right now, Robert. Exactly. This is democracy right here. Writing letters to the editor, um, calling in on talk shows. This is the citizen's game. That's the game you can manipulate the politicians through, because trust me, we've done it, right? Showing up at political rallies and getting turned away. (laughs) Because bad publicity hurts and good publicity feels good, you know? Democracy is a citizen's game if you play it that way. Not the politicians, but unfortunately it carries an unprecedented responsibility on the part of the voter to be objectively informed. And, and you know, to, put, to be able to put us all in the situation of being in informed consent. You know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But today's voters are hopelessly misguided. You can just see it in their beliefs about government. And most will argue the reason our governments at all levels are in such a fiscal and social mess is because representatives aren't doing what the public wants. But it's not true. I think for the most part, our politicians and governments are doing exactly what the public wants. And therein lies the elephant in the political closet. The voting public, for the most part, especially the left, wants something for nothing, which is something no government is capable of providing. And that's why all political parties have policies that are anything except capitalistic, since that's the only economic system that rejects the the something-for-nothing principle. Capitalism acknowledges reality since, you know, something for nothing is not possible in nature. All anti-capitalistic political ideologies reject reality and must rely on the initiation of the use of state force against the citizens to, to provide whatever benefits they promise. And so, you know, these are all very misdirected efforts that evade the true cause of our government's failure at all levels. And it's their practice of fully left-wing ideologies which range from communism to fascism, but most importantly and most consistently, continuously exclude freedom and capitalism. So, you know, talking about true left and true right, you know, I'm just, I see the true right is freedom and capitalism. The true left would be tyranny and socialism. That's where they lead. You know, and what is a free society? It's one in which consent is the ruling social principle. Capitalism arises out of that because if you can consent to things, you end up with a system called capitalism. And so there's really two choices in any election, almost anywhere in the world. Do you want freedom plus capitalism, which equals prosperity, or do you want state control and the promise of, 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 of um, you know, security through wealth redistribution and socialism, which inevitably brings poverty and high prices and a reduced standard of living? We're seeing it today, seeing it happen all around us, and it's accelerating, I'm telling you. Do you want to have a, live in a society where production and profit are the main thing that we do or do you want a system of plunder and pillage which is all governments can do and that's what happens Um, do you want to get a bigger piece of a growing and larger economic pie or do you want to get a tiny ration under a fixed pie of all collectivists you know because and they're the ones who fix the pie by the way you know so it works in their favor do you want to live under a moral system that acknowledges that thou shalt not steal or do you want to live under a moral system an amoral system that asserts thou shalt not steal unless a democratic majority approves, or a deserving beneficiary has enough 
need. You know, that's basically how we operate. Unfortunately, in our reality, we only really have one of those choices, and I think that's what you're going to be getting into in your segment coming up, eh, eh Robert? Yeah, And um, that. But, you know, it's interesting that uh, in the relatively freer democracies, while those societies that have already reached their left-wing destinations, can we put it that way, of communism and fascism, there are zero choices available along with no wealth, no rights, because that's where all the wealth redistribution by government schemes end up. And in the end, it does not matter whether the nation's treasury is being robbed by the elites or by the people. The effect on the nation will be the same. Right now, we've crossed that envy line, I think, Robert. We even have a plus $100,000 list so we can all envy and be mad at the people who make more, which is the only purpose of that list. There's no reason to print something like that except to get people angry. <laughs> you know? It's a... I guess that's the way they think they can control things. But what they do is the people get angry at the people with high salaries and administrators and then at the same time demand more of the stolen loot be made available to save their precious health care system <laughs> so that they can get in line. You know, I think a responsible government would never bow or bend to such demands and, and, or allow such intolerable conditions uh, to evolve. So, you know, governments get out of control, believe it or not, I think because they actually are doing what the public's voting for. And, you know, I can hear the people going, but I didn't vote for windmills and solar, and I didn't vote for higher taxes and higher prices. Well, I'm going to answer that question a little more fully at the end of the show today. But uh, we're going to take a break now, and then when we come back, Robert will take over with his little point, and uh, before that, we'll hear from someone here who has his own solutions to a few Canadian political problems. We'll be back right after this. They don't have a sense of humor in Ottawa, really. You know, I don't know what the problem is. You know, they, in, have you ever been there in the, in, the, in the nation's capital? Right in front, they have this huge fountain with the eternal flame going. That's what they call it, the eternal flame. It's a big fountain there. And... Uh, a group, I was there before and there was a group taking pictures and they thought it was a special meaning. What is the meaning of this eternal flame? And I told them, well, the Prime Minister had the flame installed to singe the hair of the homeless who tried to steal that chain. <laughs> Be as Canadian as I can. I've offered great ideas for the homeless in Canada. Nobody listened to me. You know what I thought what a great, a great idea was? To get all the homeless people in Canada together and couple them with our next peacekeeping troop. That way we'll look heavy, man. Can you imagine the ships coming in? Holy smoke, look at all those Canadians. <laughs> ships coming in and we tell the homeless people, look, when you get to the country, lose your ID, get a ship back to Canada, you'll get everything you should have got in the first place. <laughs> it's a plan I had. I thought it would work. I don't know. What do I know? President of the United States, Mr. Patrick Layton Paulson. No matter how often it happens, I still get a wonderful feeling whenever I'm greeted by throngs of worshipers. <laughs> Nothing like a good thronging to make me forget the slings and arrows of my opponents. The other candidates charge that when I speak, I often embarrass myself. Well, at least I don't embarrass the whole country. <laughs> this nation is divided as never before. The Democrats alone are split into three political factions. The new left, the old left, and what's left. 
Even the Wallace party is split into two camps, high camp and low camp. <laughs> Nixon and Humphrey are telling everyone the big issue is law and order. Wallace says the big issue is plagiarism. <laughs> I know that a great deal of mud has been slung in this campaign. Look at what the Democrats have done to poor Richard Nixon. I'm sure you've seen those bumper stickers that say Nixon's the one. <laughs> I don't care if he is one. That's dirty politics. For all I know, Humphrey may be one too. There's even been some loose talk about George Wallace. Because of this, I have now so many new supporters that even a major daily couldn't beat him off with a stick. <laughs> let, us, let us now at this moment in history of these United States take stock of the problems that face mankind. Man's soul cries out for release from the past degradations of the human spirit. Man's heart cries out for goodwill and understanding. Man's will cries out for strength against the forces of bigotry and oppression. Man is a crybaby. <laughs> but he is crying for a change. <laughs> and then that... Uh, and that is why we can be so... Hell, I'm in here. And that is why we can be so confident of victory. We know that when the votes have been counted on election night, the word will go out to the four corners of the world, proclaiming that Patrick L. Paulson has been swept up in an overwhelmingly unanimous presidential draft and sucked into the White House. And welcome back to Just Right. And another part of democracy, Bob, is being able to poke fun at politicians. <laughs> I think uh, having humor is also a, a cornerstone of our dem democratic tradition. But we, before we began um, begin this section, we were talking about in the last section about how you and I and people like us, uh, people who like uh, freedom and capitalism, um, what do we do when we're faced with uh, the choices that we have in this particular election? I'm, cap get, I'm getting that question a lot lately. Yeah. Yeah, I see it uh, with all my Facebook friends, too. Like, who are you voting for? And a lot of people aren't voting. Uh, they just don't like the choices. What does a capitalist here in this country, uh, we're faced with no candidate he can support in the election, uh, just as with every other federal election prior mm -hmm. to this one. There's never been a choice for us. Some might think that the Conservative Party is the party favored by capitalists, but that's because, one, they don't understand the definition of capitalism, and, two, they don't understand the Conservative Party of Canada. A capitalist, and I'm just going to define it here just to put it in perspective, a capitalist, a true capitalist, is one who seeks the abolition of force from society and the separation of government from the economy. He would not advocate any law which would tax any of his fellow citizens. He would not expect the government to bail out businesses with loans or grants. And he sees as the only purpose of government the protection of each individual's uh, rights. Nothing else. That's a capitalist. Mm -hmm. Now, there are no parties in Canada. That's a philosophical capitalist. That's the philosophical to be confused perspective with, of capitalist. With, Not the economic definition or anything like that. Right. It is the philosophic definition of capitalism. There are no parties today in federal politics in Canada which fit this definition. None. All three of the main parties are socialist. We have to understand that. All three hold policies which vary only slightly and only in degree, not substance. For example, all of the socialist troika are in favor of universal, government-run, and financed health care. All of them. All three favor, to one degree or another, corporate largesse, such as with the recent bailout of the auto industry. 
all favored deficit spending, with the Conservatives recently racking up a deficit of $53.8 billion. All favor business regulations, which prevent foreign competition, lowering our standard of living. All favor so-called stimulus spending, which destroys one person's job to create another person's job. The list of agreements between these three uh, socialist parties is endless. They agree on virtually every single aspect. And um, like I say, the, any disagreement is usually minor. And what complicates matters are the deliberate misconceptions by the media who often portray the conservatives as capitalistic. The recent uh, CP, uh, CBC Compass poll, uh, which has been taken by over a million Canadians to date, has incorrectly positioned the conservatives far from the other parties, both fiscally and socially. It ranks the parties by their stated rhetoric and published policies rather than on the actual actions of the party. Yeah, and that's a big thing to keep in mind. Remember, there's a big disconnect between what a party says and what it actually does. And it's not just that the CBC poll wants to identify the Conservatives of ca as capitalists, but as evil capitalists. Oh, of course, yes. Because <laughs> that word is inherent in there. Oh, yeah. capitalism, oh my goodness, that's evil. Okay, yeah. anything but... And I'm just going to give you a few examples from that uh, poll. Have you taken the CPC Compass no, poll? I, haven't. I, I took it a couple of times just to see how the answers play out, and I analyzed their questions and saw how they say the, each political party's position is on each one. They have a ranking there uh, mm -hmm. of all of them. And here's a, a few of the examples from the 30 statements and questions on the poll. Now, for the statement, the federal budget deficit should be reduced even if it leads to fewer public services. The CBC stated that the Conservative Party position is they somewhat agree with that statement. While in reality, the Conservatives are responsible for the largest deficit spending in Canadian history. So how can they somewhat agree that the budget sh deficit should be reduced and yet turn around and give us one of the largest budget deficits in history? Right. That puts them not on the right wing, but puts them right up there with the NDP and the Liberals. For the statement, Canada should adopt a carbon tax. Now, the CBC says the Conservative Party position is strongly disagree. And yet, Prime Minister Harper has, on several occasions, indicated he supports government-enforced reductions in CO2 emissions, having bought into the left's climate change scheme. So how can you say that, oh, I'm not going to have a carbon tax yet, we're going to reduce all the carbon footprint that we're making out here? How do you plan to do that, Stephen? Prime Minister Harper, how do you plan on doing that without imposing some form of restrictions, taxations, and um, burdens on mm -hmm. businesses to do exactly what what the other people who are saying are, are wanting with a carbon tax? Now, for the statement, how much of a role should the private sector have in health care, the CBC states that the Conservatives' position a, a somewhat more, and yet... The Conservatives have categorically stated that they support and uphold the Canada Health Act, which limits all private involvement in the administration of health care and outlaws any private health insurance, the identical position of the other two socialist parties. So there's no difference there. Now, mind you, the poll correctly grouped the Liberals and the NDP together in policies, but the separation of the Conservatives from the group is contrived and dishonest and perpetuates the myth that conservatives are fiscally responsible when exactly the opposite has been demonstrated to be true every single time they come to power.
If there's any difference in the parties at all, it may be in what motivates them. The Conservatives are motivated by faith and tradition. God and the Queen. Something is good because it is revealed as such in the Bible, or it is because our parents observed it. Contrarily, the Liberals support a position because science, mostly pseudoscience, or because it is new and progressive. Neither party support a position because it is rational or right to do so, but only because it is said to be so by priests or scientists, or because it is a conservative or a progressive position. Note that, regardless of the motivation of the parties, the position held will be the same for all the parties. That position will always involve government inter intervention into the lives and the economy of the people. Which, which kind of gets back to my point. Aren't they then serving the public? Isn't that what the public wants? They're giving the public exactly what they, they want that's exactly right. in the short term. Yep. Every time, no matter how, what their motivation, the policies of all three of this socialist troika, all of their policies are statist and all of them are socialist. None of them are capitalist, ever. Now, to hit home this point, I'm going to play a little clip here from Ayn Rand. And um, it was addressed, Message to America, a little piece that she did. Oh, I, I don't know the exact date on this, but it has to be, I think, the early 60s, probably uh, 61 probably, or so. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> little, piece, little piece you can actually find on uh, YouTube. And um, give a, a listen to this one because um, you're going to have to actually uh, attentively listen because it's not a very good copy. I have to admit that. It's a very old piece. It's... Um, well, it's typical of the era. It's typical think, of the think, era. Yeah. It's 50 years old, and uh, the audio quality is a little bit rough. So, And, of course, Ayn Rand has a very thick uh, so, uh, Russian, uh, Russian accent. accent. I was about to say Soviet. <laughs> She'd kill me. <laughs> she heard that. Yeah. A Russian accent. She can't do anything about it anymore. That's true. Yeah, yeah she has a rather thick Russian accent, So, uh, but she hits the home, uh, home the point perfectly in this uh, clip, and we'll be right back right after this. Listen, yes. The Conservatives have gradually come to a dim realization of the weakness in their position, of the philosophical flaws that had to be corrected. But the means by which they are attempting to correct it are worse than the original weakness. There are three interrelated arguments used by today's Conservatives to justify capitalism, which can best be designated as the argument from faith, the argument from tradition, the argument from depravity. Sensing their need of a moral base, many conservatives decided to choose religion as their moral justification. They are claiming that freedom, capitalism, and America are based on faith in God. Politically, such a claim contradicts the fundamental principles of the United States. In America, religion is a private matter and must not be brought into political issues. Intellectually, to rest one's case on faith is to concede that reason is on the side of one's enemies, to concede that there are no rational arguments to support the ideas which created this country, no rational justification for freedom, justice, property, individual rights, and they, they can be accepted only on faith. Consider the implications of that attempt. While the communists are claiming that they are the champions of reason and science, the conservatives conceded 
and retreat into the realm of mysticism, into another world, surrendering this world to communism. It is the kind of victories that communist irrational ideology could never have won on its own merits. Now consider a second argument, the attempt to justify capitalism on the ground of tradition. Some people declare that to be a conservative means to uphold the status quo, the given, the established, regardless of what it might be, regardless of whether it is good or bad, right or wrong, defensible or indefensible. They declare that we must defend the American political system, not because it is right, but because our ancestors chose it, not because it is good, but because it is old. America was created by men who broke with all political traditions and originated a system unprecedented in history, relying on nothing but the unaided power of their own intellect. But those neoconservatives are now trying to tell us that America was the product of faith in revealed truth and of uncritical respect for the traditions of the past. It is certainly irrational to use the new as a standard of value, to believe that an idea or a policy is good merely because it is new. But it is much more preposterously irrational to use the old as a standard of value, to claim that an idea or a policy is good merely because it is ancient. The liberals are constantly asserting that they represent the future, that they are new, progressive, forward-looking, etc. And they denounce the conservatives as old-fashioned representatives of a dead past. The conservatives conceded and thus helped the liberals to propagate one of today's most grotesque contradictions. Collectivism and dictatorship, the frozen status society, is offered to us in the name of progress, while capitalism, the only free, dynamic, creative society ever devised, is defended in the name of passivity and stagnation. The plea to preserve tradition as such appeals to the worst elements in men and rejects the best. It appeals to fear, cowardice, conformity, self-doubt, and rejects creativeness, originality, independence, self-reliance. It is an outrageous plea to address to human beings anywhere, but the more outrageous here, in America, the country based on the principle that man must stand on his own feet, live by his own judgment, and move constantly forward as a productive, creative innovator. This country's split right now. I think if you're a Republican, well, you're wrong. But I think if you're a Republican, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I own like four Republicans in case three break down. But um, I think if you're a Republican, that's awesome. I think if you're a Democrat, that's awesome. I just think we need to vote. We need to vote a lot. My favorite thing to vote on, thank you, both of you. My favorite thing. <laughs> 
to vote on are the initiatives, you know, the propositions, where you'll see an argument for one side, and you're like, that's a good point. And then you'll see an argument for the other side, and you're like, that's a good point, too. And you never know which way to vote. I think we need a few that it's just obvious which way to vote right off the bat. Like, wouldn't it be cool if it was like, Proposition 9 to 7, should we continue to not eat babies? <laughs> right there, you'd be like, hell yeah, I don't want to eat babies, you know? I don't have time, they're not delicious. It would be eating babies, and that's weird to me. So there's three reasons that I've come up with that I'm voting no. But the way they phrase those things, when you get to the voting booth, you don't know which way you're voting, because it's always, should we not eat unbabies, not on this not day? And you're just sitting there like, I don't want to eat babies, you know? I don't have time, they're not delicious. Remember my reasons? I had like three. So you vote no on it, and then it's on the news the next day. Well, 74% of Americans decided it's time to eat babies. What the hell's wrong with you? This is my new position. I speak like this. Back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on our conversation. You can also find us on the Internet where we've archived all of our shows at uh, justrightmedia.org. Now, given the fact that capitalists like you and me, Bob, have no choices... That's rich capitalists. Yes, that's rich (laughs) capitalists, I wish. Have very little choice in the way of parties to vote for this coming election and previous elections. What do you do? Well, we have choices, but just not one for capitalism. That's correct. Now, it may not be that bad, I mean, depending on how you look at it. I've got a few uh, suggestions here we could do. First of all, just don't vote. That's part of exercising your right not to vote. Don't do it. Or we could decline our ballot, which is done by just showing up at the poll, polling station and handing in the ballot back to the returning officer and telling them to record it as declined. We could vote strategically based on political party and choose which of the three socialist parties is the least socialist in your opinion, if there's such a thing could exist. We could vote strategically based on the political candidate regardless of their political affiliation. Or we could vote for one of the single-issue parties such as the Rhinoceros Party, the Marijuana Party, or the Green Party. Now the first choice of not voting at all is what many of my capitalist friends have decided to do. There's nothing wrong in that. The lower turnout in the election, however, will be interpreted unfortunately as voter apathy, not necessarily as a protest since many people don't vote for many reasons. That's a good observation. And, yeah, there's also really little benefit to not voting, <clears throat> but on the plus side, it means that you are not actively part- contributing, participating, or supporting a socialist. Some may suggest that not voting is an abrogation of a responsibility to be involved, but they don't understand that to have a right means having the choice not to do something as well as to do something. The right to free speech means also the right to keep quiet. The right to free expression also means the right not to express oneself. And likewise, a right to vote means the right not to. It's a matter of choice. Advocates for mandatory voting legislation such as they have in Australia are actually advocating taking away our right to vote since the choice not to would be taken away from us. And while we still have the right to vote or not, not voting may be the best thing an advocate of capitalism could do. Declining the ballot is also rarely done. Though I've done it myself more than once. Have you ever done that, Bob? No. no. I've, I've seen the process. <laughs> yeah. I've seen Mark... Well, I haven't seen him, but uh, Mark Emery once uh, burned his ballot. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's never really uh, considered or reported on the election by the election officials. Uh, it's off, it's often recorded as a spoiled ballot and does not. It doesn't anybody uh, doesn't doesn't carry any weight. It doesn't carry any weight. Yeah. It, it it's not really good uh, good as a protest. Any benefit is personal, as you you know that your choice to decline was not out of apathy or laziness. Uh, it could also be said that when you have your name crossed off the list, as the returning officers do, when you show up to vote, that prevents anyone from using your name in case of voter fraud, which, by the way, happens a lot in this country. Voting strategically by party is extremely speculative and may indeed provide the opposite results you intended. The party policies, platforms and leaders of all three socialist parties change with the wind, with perhaps the exception of the New Democratic Party, which is more or less consistently on the extreme left based on their rhetoric. The other two socialist parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, have swung back and forth, vying for the center field of the socialist left. The left field. Yeah, but the, that's why they went left, because there was one party that stayed there. Yeah. And it pulls the other two. The pragmatic parties will be pulled by the principled parties mm -hmm. in the long run. That's why we need a party on the right. That's why we need Freedom Party. Yeah. The differences between the two main parties is practically insignificant, as I said uh, earlier on. And while many advocates of capitalism, like you and me, often vote for the Conservative Party, uh, actually, I shouldn't have said you and me in that particular respect, because I don't think we've ever voted Conservative. Um, without exception, we're always disappointed as soon as the Conservatives take power. Without exception, always disappointed. That leaves voting strategically based on the strengths or weaknesses of the individual candidates in their respective writings, regardless of their political party affiliation. But at the end of the day, all members of the parties in the House must vote as their party whips dictate. Now, this tradition all but negates the effect of voting for a candidate based on his personally stated beliefs or track record while holding lesser offices, for example, city councillor. If there's any benefit at all to voting for whom you consider to be the less socialistic of the candidates, it is that they may have the power to persuade their colleagues in, in party to be less socialistic or perhaps sway um, their leaders' decisions or help craft policies that are less socialistic. But I tell you, given the current philosophies of the three main parties, I find this very unlikely. Not only that, the relatively recent transition, for example, from the Reform Party to the Canadian Alliance to the conservative incarnation of the, conser the current conservative uh, party, uh, I think that transition has demonstrated that even with hundreds of members and thousands of supporters who were trying to form a less socialistic conservative wing in the House, such an attempt has utterly failed. Stephen Harper and his cadre of big spenders have taken what may have been a chance at a less socialist party and moved it to the left in his never-ending quest for power. Voting for a single-issue party is wrong on so many levels. What if such a candidate won? Can you imagine <laughs> if we had a, a rhinoceros member well, of parliament? they're not around anymore. But uh, again, actually, they are. They came back. Really? Yep, they came back. They're in Quebec. No uh, kidding. Yep. I just heard an interview with the leader of the rhinoceros party the other day. So uh, they do have that choice out there. It's a bit oh. of humor, I, I imagine, as much like... An a, option against the block. An, <laughs> both of them the are silly heads. parties, if you ask me. <laughs> silly yeah. parties, yeah, speaking of silly Can you imagine parties. if they, one of them got in power? Um, we'd be jeopardizing, uh, you know, if, if one of those got in power, we'd be jeopardizing every other issue of importance for the sake of one issue which has consumed the life of the candidate, um, ma uh, making blind... Uh, 
blinding them to the importance of all else. I mean, there's not just one issue at, at stake here in a federal election. You have to buy a whole package deal. If you're going to be voting green, you're only going to be voting for one particular uh, issue, the environment, uh, while the other political parties have uh, statements and policy on the environment as well. Yeah, basically green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so why vote green so why party vote, when you can vote, vote for the other three? Right? That's uh, a little silly. Um, there's, by the way, there's one other option open to those of us who don't have a candidate's name on the ballot. They feel comfortable putting an X beside or completing the arrow as we do now. And I've used this option myself on five different occasions, Bob. That option is to run for office yourself. It may be the only way for some of us to exercise their right to vote without compromising their principles. And it's not as difficult as you might uh, as you might imagine. You've actually run for office as well, mm -hmm. too, Bob. So it's... Uh, federally, provincially, and municipally. That's right, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I've, I've run uh, federally and, and for uh, city council and for school trustee. Yeah, you, you got elected twice. I did get elected I can't elected say twice. I did that. So. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I came in second federally, <laughs> yeah. was, which was, I've considered a, a bit of an accomplishment, coming in second, defeating the NDP and the progressive conservative candidate, or the PC, as he was called at the time. So, to conclude... Election day is May 2nd out there, so if you can't vote wisely and with confidence that your vote will lead to a freer and more capitalistic Canada, please do us all a favor and don't vote at all. Remember, it's your right. <laughs> and we'll be back. Welcome to Election Night Special. There's tremendous excitement here at the moment as we should be getting the first results through any moment now. We're not quite sure where it'll be from. It might be from Leicester or from West Byfleet. The polling's been quite heavy in both areas. Oh, and I'm just getting, I'm just getting a buzzing noise in my left ear. <laughs> and now let's go straight over to Leicester. And it's a straight fight here at Leicester. And we're expecting the result any moment now. There with the returning officer is Arthur Smith, the sensible candidate. And next to him is Jethro Q. Walrus Titty, the silly candidate with his agent and his silly wife. Uh, here, here is the, the result for Leicester. Arthur J. Smith. Sensible party. 30,612. Jethro Q. Bonwacket, Buzzard, Stubble and Boot, Walrus Titty. Silly party. 33,108. Well, there you have it, the first result of the election now, the silly party have held Leicester Norman. Well, pretty much as I predicted, except that the silly party won. Uh, I think this is largely due to the number of votes cast. Quite, Joe? Quite. Well, there's a big swing here to the silly party, but how big a swing, I'm not going to tell you. I think one should point out here that in this constituency, uh, since the last election, a lot of very silly people have moved into new housing estates, with the result that a lot of sensible voters have moved further down the road, the other side of number uh, uh, 29. Well, I can't add anything to that, Colin. Uh, can I just say this is the first time I've been on television? No, I'm sorry, there isn't time. Um, we're just going straight over to Luton. Well, here at Luton, it's a three-cornered contest between... From, from left to right, Alan Jones, sensible party... Tarquin Fintim Limbim, Limbim Bim Bim Bim, bus stop for tank for tank, Ole Biscuit Barrel, <laughs> silly party, and Kevin Phillips Bong, who is running on the slightly silly ticket. And here's the result. Alan Jones. Sensible. 9,112. Kevin Phillips Bong. Slightly silly. Not. <laughs> Tom 
Swagwin, Bintin, Limbin, Wimbim, Limbim, Bus Stop, Fatang, Fatang, Olay, Biscuit Barrel. Silling. 12,441. Well, there you have it. The first result of the election there as a silly party. Take Luton normally. Well, this is a very significant result. Luton normally, a very sensible constituency, with a high proportion of people who aren't a bit silly, has gone completely gaga. And we just heard that James Gilbert has with him the winning silly candidate. I've just heard from Luton that my aunt is ill. Uh, possibly gastroenteritis, possibly just guitar. Gerald. Right. And um, Colin? Can I just say he'll never appear on television again? No, I'm sorry, right. there isn't time, because we have to bring up a few results you may have missed. A little pink pussycat has taken Barrow in Furness. Uh, that's a game from the Liberals there. Um, Rastus Odinga Oginga has taken Wolverhampton Southwest. That's uh, Enoch Powell's old constituency. An important gain there for darky power. Um, Arthur Negus has held Bristol's. That's uh, not a result, that's just a bit of gossip. Um, Sir Alec Douglas Hume has taken Oldham for the Stone Dead Party. And a, a small piece of putty about that big, a cheese mechanic from Dunbar, and two frogs, one called Kipper and the other one not, have all gone in Blackpool Central. And so it's beginning to look like a silly landslide when the prospect of five more years of silly government facing us. We. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm bored. For you. Here's my impression of your Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien, as a stand-up comedian. Why did Lucien Bouchard cross the road? Huh? Why did he do that? Work with me together on this one. Make it very good. Huh? Why did Lucien Bouchard cross the road? Just to show those damn guy he can do that. That's a very good one. Okay, don't worry, I don't care about that. Don't worry, I got another one. Why did Lucien Bouchard cross back to the other side of the road? Just to piss me off that damn guy, I'll tell you that. At the time he was bugging me, you know that. Don't understand my pressure from that guy. You know what? It's a good thing he's now out of politics because one day I was going to kick the good leg out from under him, you know that. You're not going to get any more races down there, buddy. That's a good one. Well, obviously he's doing better at politics. <laughs> yes, now you're waking up. Wait a minute. No, he's not. I'm calling up all the banks I know. I got nothing to do in the morning. I'm calling up banks, seeing if I can get loan for people that I never heard of. Hey, why don't you give that guy a loan? He's good. He's very good. I don't know him, but I know someone in his writing. He's very good. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, what do you say when uh, you say I didn't vote for windmills and solar and I didn't vote for higher taxes and higher prices. You know, a lot of people say that, as I suggested at the beginning part of the show, Robert. Well, you know, if you voted for any of the Liberal, Conservative, NDP, or even Green candidates, then you did end up voting for those things, whether you thought you were voting for them or not. And the problem is that a lot of, a lot of times our parties don't tell us what they're going to do, what the policies are. We generally discover most policies after the election. 
And the thing, the biggest issues that the political parties bring in are the ones that they didn't discuss during the election, right? Mm-hmm. So that's basically what happens. And uh, so, you know, I call this the government strategic voting program, Robert. You get four options that are all the same. Talk about a winning strategy, right? <laughs> now, we can go beyond strategic voting and talk about something else that happened locally recently in, in, the, in the writing of Elgin Middlesex, London, where someone decided to uh, exercise some strategy in running, in this case not running, which I think is a losing strategy. And it was kind of a tragic situation, really, you know, with Ryan Dolby, their former NDP candidate in Elgin, Middlesex, London, who dropped out of the race after the writ was dropped. And his reason, quote, I made a strategic decision, end quote, he told the London Free Press in an article by Randy Richmond, titled an NDP dropout, March 31st. And this is from that article, Dolby's decision to withdraw from the race is dishonorable to his supporters, said Elgin Middlesex London Conservative Joe, or, or Joe Preston, who was a candidate there. Preston actually won the last election with 2,500 more votes than the Liberal and NDP combined, which is significant. Mm-hmm. But there's no point in handing the election to the Conservatives by splitting the opposing vote this time, Dolby said in an interview after making his announcement. That's the last thing I want to do. Dolby said he did not warn local or national NDP officials of his decision, believing it would be fair to let everyone know at the same time. I hadn't told anyone, he said, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, that's real democratic. Act unilaterally and don't talk to anybody. That's very suspicious, if you ask me. I think so, too, especially when he says he'd been considering the move for several months. Hmm. Well, this wasn't something that just didn't happen the last day. And get this, after realizing from discussions with local liberals that they shared his principles. <laughs> wow, really? So why did you run in the first place? Why is there an NDP? Isn't that a good question to ask in the first place? Why don't they all agree with Mr. Dolby and just quit, and then they wouldn't have to worry about the conservatives, would they? Uh, you know, he says, Har- Harper would love to continue to give more to the rich by taking from the working class through unregulated free trade agreements, continued corporate tax cuts, and by privatizing our cherished school or social programs, including health care, he said. Well, if these are, you know, Dolby's and the, and the liberal NDP and NDP principles, I mean, they're kind of uh, wrong in every way, um, factually wrong and kind of dishonorable. First of all, Harper is not doing a single thing to, quote, privatize health care. Not even on his agenda. Can't do it. Since that's, that part is strictly a provincial jurisdiction, the privatization of it, you know. It was actually the conservative government, the conservative provincial government, that banned private health care options. That's so, true. So he's, in, again, wrong party. He thinks he should be with the, with the liberals. It's actually the conservatives that did what he is asking for. And when he talks, uh, when, when Dolby criticizes, quote, giving more to the rich by taking from the working class, this is pure Marxist class warfare language. It doesn't even fit into the Canadian mosaic. Uh, you know, and, and they raise this to some kind of political idealism, which, which is better known as communism, of course. People don't want to say what a lot of our politicians really are. You know, a lot of them are communists. Out and out, if you believe in socialized medicine, you're... That far, you're communistic. It's a communistic plan. As a matter of fact, that, that particular system that we have today um, has only been seen in uh, communist countries like Cuba. Yes, because we have no other options. They won't, they won't allow us to have the private option, which because people like this don't want us to ha- have it. You know, if I get sick in the hospital one day, can I sue this guy for, for preventing me from getting the medicine that I should have gotten? No, I can't. He's immune. We have, he's, be- you know. we have better choices when it comes to the health care of our pets than it does yes, for ourselves. Yes, thanks, thanks to these, this kind of thinking. 
you know, either he's too naive or, or something to, to not get the contradiction in his viewpoint, or, or he could be hiding his true beliefs. You never know what, what, what's going on here. When communists say, you know, giving more to the rich, what they really mean is taxing the, the productive less than they already are. The government is not giving anything to the rich. It merely robs them less because that's the source of their money, you know, if, if and when it ever does that, which is rare, because uh, especially under conservative <laughs> regimes. Um, I can think of no government in the history of my lifetime that has reduced spending. Can you, Robert? Uh, no. You know, when they talk about reduced spending, they're talking about reducing the rate of the increase in spending when you hear that. But they've never <laughs> actually yep. reduced spending. That has never happened. And spending is really, of course, the true tax rate that's imposed upon all taxpayers, um, particularly the middle class, because uh, it's the largest taxpayer group. And... Um, their accumulated collective wealth dwarfs that of the so-called rich. So, you know, I heard a great phrase the other day, the real wars between the makers and the takers. <laughs> uh, something I heard mm. on Tom McConnell's show. And, you know, the working class is no way at war with the so-called rich. By placing them in political opposition, the inevitable consequence is to destroy both groups. You know, I'd mention what would happen to the poor when the rich and working class are mutually destroyed, but since Dolby didn't raise the issue of the poor, I won't either. And I find that interesting, that the NDP doesn't talk about the poor that much anymore as about the working class, the workers. You know, uh, you know why? Why? Because their constituents are usually working, for example, in auto plants, and they're making close to 100 grand a year. And they all have benefits. Sure, and they always <laughs> and, it's, and it's groups like this support support higher minimum wages to clean up, mm -hmm. the, you know, create more unemployment. But uh, you know, the real war that Dolby, the NDP, and apparently the Liberals, since their principles are the same, is a war against wealth itself. That's the war they're into, and that's why we have this artificial struggle between the rich and the working class. Here's a big surprise: most of the so-called rich are in the working class, <laughs> or vice versa, right? That's mm -hmm. how they got rich. Uh, but for the sin of being economically successful, that's the thing. The NDPs and liberals explicitly choose to punish them. Oh, you're successful, you're rich, therefore we take more from you. And, uh, you know, and, and they falsely argue that they got rich by stealing their money from the working class, right? The old fixed pie lie. Uh, exactly, you know. And the conservatives, on the other hand, they quietly and secretly <laughs> and far more effectively do exactly the same as the NDP and liberals while preaching the virtues of lower taxes, free enterprise, and small government, which is what they know people want to hear, but it doesn't give people the benefits that they want that, you know, you'd normally get. So... You know, a lot of people thought that Mr. Dolby's action was, you know, selfless. You know, was it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and by acting selflessly, he's hurt everyone. He, you know, even the people he intended to support, especially the Liberals and NDP, basically said they're both the same. Is that is that how you're going to help them, you know? And uh, it, I think it kind of helped the Conservatives in that writing more than anything else. And it was all for nothing because the NDP is still fielding a candidate despite the fact that, um, you know, it is a virtual duplicate of the Liberal Party, according to their previous candidate. And so clearly then, if that's true, the NDP is more interested in gaining power for itself than it is in defeating Harper and the Conservatives, isn't it? Yeah. So, so much for the selfless NDP. You know, that's basically the whole situation there. A uh, quick thing came up today, just in the news today. I guess Ed Holder didn't want a debate at a all-candidates debate that was only about health care. 
And uh, I made a comment on this on another radio station today already. I said, uh, you know, and it's been my experience that whenever candidates during elections go to all candidates' debates, especially the ones that are based on single issues, you know what they hear? Gimme, 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 gimme. Mm-hmm. That's all they get. And they're the most depressing places to go to because you could tell them whether you're going to do that or not way outside the election. You don't have to go to these meetings just to be berated for an hour. No, I, I disagree, though, because, I mean, I've gone to a lot of candidates' debates being on the other side of the no, table. No, I mean, in terms of actually accomplishing the candidate, I would go. That's true. Yeah. Oh, of course, I know you would. And it's, a, it's an opportunity to go out there and explain and to rationalize decisions and to actually make fun at the other people. For their well, and I've done that. Ideas. I, I remember when I was at a nurses' association all candidates debate, and they started asking me questions like, "What would you do to make sure that <laughs> doctors and nurses had sponges in the operating room?" And I had, I, I, I got up and stopped the whole proceeding. I said, "Excuse me, but I don't know about the rest of you up here. I'm running for provincial parliament. That was the yeah. election at the time. I'm not running to run your hospitals. Yeah. I don't know anything about medicine. I'm the last guy in the world you want to ask a question about it, right?" <laughs> I got up at, oh. a, at a candidate's debate run by the teacher's union, and I was a trustee at a time, right? Re running for a trustee. Mm-hmm. And um, I got up there, and it was the middle of a, a job action, actually, from the teachers. And they were all walking off to protest Harris. And they go, What do you think of our job action? I said, I'd fire the lot of you. <laughs> now, this is at a candidate's yeah. debate that I knew that they were going to blast me. And I just blasted them. I got. Nope. I took the opportunity you know, to tell them exactly what I thought of their. I got reelected, by the way. That's exactly it. And a lot of politicians think they always have to, you know, pay lip service to the groups they go they go talk to. When in fact, it might be in their advantage to not do that, to literally go the other way. But only if. And this is the big if. If the media will cover it. If nobody's mm-hmm. going to cover it and get the word out, then then you've lost. Yeah, you but know? you don't it's know it. You don't know that. Yeah. You can't tell. You got to show up in mall. Anyways, that's it for us today, and we're going to have to get out of here. And we hope again that you'll join us on our journey in the right direction again next week as we continue that journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be people in this country are sick and tired of being told that ordinary decent people are fed up in this country with being sick and tired. No, I am certainly not. And I'm sick and tired being told that I am. Lady Hadley Jones? Well, I meet a lot of people and I'm convinced that the vast majority of wrong-thinking people are right. Well, we seem to have a consensus there. Could we have the next question, please? Um, I would like to ask the team what changes they would make if they were Hitler. Gerald? Well, speaking personally, I'd annex the Sudetenland. Norman? I think I'd pay some Dutchman to set fire to Lord Snowden. Liberal rubbish!